Welcome back to USMLE Listen, Microbiology Chapter 9, Important Parasites. On this episode, we will go over some crucial USMLE exam-related facts on different parasites. As always, please email us at usmlelisten at gmail.com for your questions, anything you need cleared, or suggestions on how we can improve and initiate your auditory learning. Sources for USMLE Listen include First Aid of Osmosis, UWorld, and Kaplan Study Guides. This is Mark Labella. You can follow or message me on Instagram at Mark J. Labella and parasitology, here we go. Hello doctors, we're going to start with the obligatory introduction to these organisms. Let's start with a classification of parasites. Medical parasitology is a study of invertebrate animals classified as protozoans or metazoans and the most important organism in the United States are identified in the following. First, let's talk about the protozoans. The protozoans are either amoeba, flagellates, or apicomplexa. In the amoebas, we're talking about entamoeba, nigleria, and acanthamoeba. In the flagellates, we're talking about two different flagellates or two groups of flagellates. The first one invade the luminal gut which are trichomonas and jarja and the second one are hemoflagellates which are leishmania or trypanosoma. And apicomplexa protozoans are divided by blood or tissue versus your intestinals. In your blood and tissue you will have your plasmodiums, your toxoplasmas, and babesias. And doctors in the intestinals you will have cryptosporidium and isospora. Pneumocystis used to be classified in the protozoans but remember Remember, it's just been determined that it's actually a fungus. Now let's talk about metazoans, which are essentially worms. Now let's divide them between flatworms and roundworms. Flatworms, otherwise known as platyhelminthes. All right, so number one. The first example of a flatworm are trematodes, or otherwise known as flukes. And those are fasciola, fasciolopsis, paragonimus, clonorchis, and schistosomas. Number two type of flatworms are cestodes, otherwise known as tapeworms. Your cestodes examples are Diphylobothrium, Hymenolepis, Tinea, and Echinococcus. Now moving on to a different type of worm, which are the roundworms. And roundworms are made up of nematodes. And speaking of nematodes, I have a wonderful mnemonic for you. It's Nuatodes, N-E-W-A-T-O-D-E-S. N for Nicator, E for Enterobius, W for Butcheraria or Brugia, and A for Ascaria and ancillostoma, T for Toxicaragicurus and Trichinella, O for Onchocerca, D for Dranconculus, E for Eyeworm, otherwise known as Loa Loa, and Strongyloides, S for Strongyloides. Let's talk about the different terms that we need to know about hosts. The infected host is classified as an intermediate host or a definitive host. The intermediate host is a larval or asexual stage of development. Intermediate, larval, or asexual. And the definitive stage is a host in which the adult or the sexual stages will occur. Definitive adult or sexual. And vectors are living transmitters. For example, like your fly, and they may be either mechanical, which transport the parasite, but there's no development in the parasite itself, or biologic, in which some stages of the life cycle actually do occur. And that's it for my short spiel intro. Let's get to the good stuff. Hello, doctors. We're going to start with protozoa. Protozoan parasites. Now we're going to start with a parasite that I personally experienced, which is amoebiasis. I developed an infection of the Entamoeba histiolytica. 
to amoeba histolytica. It causes amoebic dysentery, and what you'll have is inverted flask-shaped lesions in your large intestines with extension to the peritoneum, possibly the liver, lungs, brain, and heart. You can see blood and pus and stools and liver abscesses. Now, it never got that bad for me, but it was not a good experience. How do you diagnose Entamoeba histiolytica? You diagnose it through trophozoites or cysts in stools. And how does Entamoeba histiolytica look like on a microscope? The trophozoite will have engulfed RBCs or red blood cells, and you can see that in the cytoplasm, while the cysts will have up to four nuclei in the stool. You can also do serology, which show nuclei have sharp central karyosome and fine chromatin spokes. And how do you treat this? You treat this with metronidazole, and you can follow that up with iodoquinol. You can also provide paramomycin or iodoquinol for asymptomatic cyst passers. And before we move on to our next protozoa, here's something to remember. Your mnemonic is EEE. Entamoeba eats erythrocytes. Entamoeba eats erythrocytes. Our next parasite is Giardia lamblia. Giardia lamblia. And just like how I drank the cysts in the water for Entamoeba histiolytica, Giardia lamblia can also come from the cysts in the water. It doesn't only come from human feces, it also can come from human, beaver, muskrat, etc. And it can cause oral transmission through water, food, daycare, and oral anal sex. But with giardiasis, you have ventral sucking disc that attaches to the lining of the duodenal wall. It causes a fatty, foul-smelling diarrhea, and a diarrhea that causes malabsorption of your duodenum and your jejunum. And I hope you notice the big differences of amoebiasis and giardiasis here. With giardia it's in your small intestines, the duodenum and jejunum. While entamoeba histolytica causes lesions in your large intestines, how it looks is also very different. Giardia is flagellate. Its motile form is pear-shaped with two identical nuclei and a ventral disc for adhesion While its cyst has a protective cell wall with four nuclei and they call the motility of Giardia lamblia a falling leaf motility It's hard to miss the look of Giardia lamblia as a trophozoite because it looks like two eyes with a face looking right at you And they call that owl's eye appearance and how do you treat Giardia lamblia the same thing you treat Giardia with metronidazole Metronidazole is a nitroimidazole class which inhibits nucleic acid synthesis by forming nitrosol radicals and that disrupts the DNA of microbial cells. Metronidazole damages DNA. Metronidazole damages DNA. This damaging of DNA function only happens when metronidazole is partially reduced to hydroxymetronidazole and that is only reduced by certain organisms such as anaerobic bacteria and protozoans such as your Giardia lamblia and your Entamoeba histolytica. It has very little effect on your aerobic bacteria or your human cells. And before we move on to our next protozoa, here's your mnemonic. Think fat-rich Giardelli chocolates for fatty stools in Giardia. Giardelli chocolate for fatty stools in Giardia lamblia. Our next protozoa is Cryptosporidium, specifically Cryptosporidium parvum, and it causes cryptosporidiosis, seen in transient diarrhea in healthy people, but severe diarrhea in immunocompromised hosts, especially in patients with AIDS. Its transmission is that you will see the oocysts in water. Cryptosporidium oocysts in water. You can also see the cysts in undercooked meat, and it's not killed by chlorination. Chlorine doesn't kill cryptosporidium. 
You diagnose this through acid-fast oocysts in the stool and its biopsy will show dots or cysts in intestinal glands. You diagnose cryptosporidium through oocysts on acid-fast staining. It's an acid-fast parasite. As well as antigen detection. Its intracellular form is untreatable in immunocompromised patients. Nothing is 100% effective with cryptosporidium. So it's important to prevent it by filtering city water supplies. But you can also use nitrazoxanide as a treatment for immunocompromised hosts, but it's not always 100% effective. The antiprotozoal activity of nitazoxanide is believed to be due to interference with the pyruvate veridoxin oxidoreductase enzyme. And speaking of AIDS patients, I have two more protozoans that can cause severe diarrhea in AIDS patients. Otherwise, they're self-limited in your healthy hosts. The first one is Isospora belli. And Isospora belli is a diarrhea that mimics jardiasis due to its malabsorption syndrome. You'll find oocysts and ingestion in fecal oral roots. Isospora belli is an acid-fast bacilli and elliptical oocysts in the stool that contain two sporocytes, each with four sporozoites. You treat Isospora belli with TMP-SMX or pyrimethamine sulfadiazine. And those medications mess with our folic acid synthesis or DNA methylation. The second diarrhea-causing protozoa is Cyclospora chiatinensis. Cyclospora chiatinensis. It's a self-limited diarrhea in immunocompetent hosts or healthy hosts, but causes prolonged and severe diarrhea in AIDS patients. You can also see oocysts, and you will get this through the water as well. You diagnose this through a fecal specimen, and it's acid-fast, and it's spherical oocyst. Cyclospora chiatinensis is spherical oocysts, which contain two spores each with two sporozoites. You will see UV fluorescence with this as well. And its treatment is the same thing. It's TMPSMX or trimethoprim sulfamethoxazole. Isospora belli, elliptical oocysts. Cyclospora chiatinensis, spherical oocysts. The next protozoan parasite is Microsporidia. Microsporidia is persistent, debilitating diarrhea in AIDS patients. It causes neurologic hepatitis and disseminated infection. Microsporidia has six different genera. In history, Microsporidia are considered protozoan, even though now they are mostly considered as fungi. However, it's still important for us to talk about these unicellular, intracellular parasites that are closely related to fungi that can cause micro sporidiosis. You can get this through ingestion of the spores. And it's gram-positive acid-fast spores in stool and biopsy material. In HIV-infected individuals, microsporidiosis generally occurs when the CD4 T-cell count falls below 150. Of interest to note that microsporidia have a unique invasion organelle which is the polar tube discharging out of the spore and piercing a host cell membrane. Treatment also isn't always 100% with this but because it has a significant mortality risk in immunocompromised patients we give albendazole which inhibits the tubulin and fumigillin which inhibits your methionine aminopeptidase type 2 or MET-AP2. These are two main therapeutic agents that we use to treat or try to treat microsporidiosis. The next protozoa is Trichomonas vaginalis, a very common 
urogenital protozoa, and it causes trichomoniasis, often asymptomatic, but it can also come with frothy vaginal discharge. Its form is trophozoites, and it is sexual. You can easily diagnose this through light microscopy, and with light microscopy, you will be able to see the motile trophozoites in methylene blue wet mount or corkscrew motility. Trichomonas vaginalis or trichomoniasis is asymptomatic in men. And like our Entamoeba histiolytica and Jarja lamblia, we treat our Trichomonas vaginalis with metronidazole. Metronidazole for Trichomonas. Some other clinical clues about Trichomonas is that it's one, it is a sexually transmitted infection, it can cause vaginitis, foul smelling, greenish discharge, itching, and burning, but do not confuse this with Gardenella vaginalis, which is a gram variable bacterium associated with with bacterial vaginosis. And earlier when I mentioned that it is sexual within a human body, it cannot exist outside of human beings because it cannot form cysts. On your patient, you will find punctate cervical hemorrhages, otherwise known as a strawberry cervix. Trichomonas and strawberries. Think of trichomonas and strawberries, but your USMLE exam won't say strawberry cervix. It'll describe the fact that it looks like a strawberry. There's punctate cervical hemorrhages. Punctate cervical hemorrhages. And remember, because it's asymptomatic in men and it's a sexually transmitted infection, you give the patient and their partner prophylaxis and then you check for other STIs or STDs. Metronidazole for prophylaxis. Now I'm going to go over protozoa that cause CNS infections. And doctors, there are three protozoa that cause CNS infections, and they are Toxoplasma gondii, Niglera fowleri, and Trypanosoma brucei. These three target our central nervous system. We'll start with Toxoplasma gondii. Toxoplasma affect the healthy and the immunocompetent with just a mononucleosis-like symptoms that results in a negative heterophile antibody test. However, in AIDS patients, there could be reactivation, which means it'll cause brain abscesses, causing multiple ray-enhancing lesions on an MRI. Babies can have congenital toxoplasmosis with a classic triad of chorioretinitis, hydrocephalus, and intracranial calcifications. Congenital toxoplasmosis. Osmosis. Number one, chorioretinitis. Number two, hydrocephalus. Number three, intracranial calcifications. You transmit toxoplasma by cysts in meat, which is the most common, and then oocysts in cat feces. It crosses the placenta, which is why pregnant women should avoid cats. The diagnosis is serology. You can have biopsy with it, and you will see the tachyzoites. The treatment for toxoplasma gondii is sulfadiazine plus pyrimethamine. Both sulfadiazine and pyrimethamine interrupt your folic acid synthesis and DNA methylation. Sulfadiazine plus pyrimethamine for toxoplasma. Two of these protozoas are free-living amoebas which means that they occur in water or soil, such as Nigleria and Ancanthamoeba. They can also occur in contact lens saline solution, such as your Acanthamoeba, which are cysts from dust contaminants. I know I only said the three earlier, which are the Toxoplasma, Nigleria, and Trypanosoma that cause your CNS infections, but I'd like to add Acanthamoeba to that mix. First free-living amoeba is Nigleria fowleri. Nigleria fowleri causes amoebic meningoencephalitis, or PAM. 
primary amoebic meningoencephalitis. Your patient is going to have severe prefrontal headache, nausea, high fever, altered sense of smell, and it's often fatal. It can be transmitted through free-living amoeba picked up while swimming or diving in very warm, fresh water. Its disease progress is very rapid, so its quick diagnosis is very important. You'll see motile trophozoites in your CSF, and your culture plates will be seeded with gram-negative bacteria. Amoeba will leave trails. But do you really have time to do cultures? No, no, you have to diagnose the amoebas in your CSF. And you do immediate treatment with amphotericin B, which has been effective for a few survivors, not 100%. Amphotericin B for Nigleria fowleri. Now, while Nigleria causes primary amoebic meningoencephalitis, acanthamoeba, however, causes keratitis and granulomatous amoebic encephalitis, GAE. Acanthamoeba causes granulomatous amoebic encephalitis. Especially in immunocompromised patients. It's insidious onset but is progressive to death. Acanthamoebas are free living amoebas as well and it's transmitted through contaminated contact lens solution or airborne cysts. It's not certain if GAE or granulomatous amoebic encephalitis is caused by inhalation or contact with contaminated soil or water yet. But what we do know is that it's diagnosed through star-shaped cysts on your biopsy. It's rarely seen on your CSF. The keratitis that's caused by acanthamoebas can be treated with topical meconazole and propaminidine isothionate. GAE, however, or granulomatous amoebic encephalitis, is treated with ketoconazole and sulfamethazine, which are rarely successful. Very high fatality rate for acanthamoebas. And the third protozoa that causes CNS infection I mentioned earlier is Trypanosoma brucei, causing the African sleeping sickness. Trypanosoma brucei, African sleeping sickness. And that'll cause enlarged lymph nodes recurring fevers due to the antigenic variations, as well as somnolence and coma. Trypanosoma brucei is transmitted through the tsetse fly, and it's a very painful bite. Its diagnosis is seeing the trypomastigote in the blood smear. You treat Trypanosoma brucei or African sleeping sickness with suramine for bloodborne diseases or melarsoprol for the CNS penetration. The mnemonic for that is I sure am mellow when I'm sleeping. I sure am is suramine, mellow, melarsoprol, and sleeping for African sleeping sickness. I sure am mellow when I'm sleeping. Before we go into our hematologic protozoans, I want to go over some other protozoans because I'm going to go deep into plasmodium, which is very important in their life cycle. Other protozoas include Trypanosoma cruzi, which causes Chagas disease. And Chagas disease causes dilated myopathy with apical atrophy, megacolon, megaesophagus, predominantly seen in South America. With Chagas disease, you'll also see a unilateral periorbital swelling known as the Romania sign. The Romania sign is a characteristic of the acute stage of Chagas. Its transmission is by the triatomine insect. Trypanosoma cruzi, triatomine insect. Or the kissing bug. The triatomine insect or the kissing bug bites and defecates around the mouth or eyes, so it literally poops on you. And the fecal transmission is into the bite side or the mucosa. You diagnose Chagas disease or Trypanosoma cruzi through seeing trypomastigotes in your blood smears. The treatment for Chagas disease or Trypanosoma cruzi is besnidazole or nifertimox. Your mnemonic for that is cruising in my bends with a fur coat on. Cruising in my bends with my fur coat on. 
Cruise stands for the Trypanosoma cruzi, Benz, of course, with the Besnidazole, and then the fur coat stands for Nifertamox. Cruising in my Benz with my fur coat on. Next protozoa is Leishmania. The Leishmania species can cause visceral leishmaniasis or calazar, causing spiking fevers, hepatosplenomegaly, and pancytopenia. You can also have cutaneous leishmaniasis, which can cause skin ulcers. And you can transmit your leishmania through the sand fly. Leishmania sand fly. Leishmania can be transmitted by the sand fly and diagnosed through the macrophages containing emastigotes. Leishmania macrophages containing emastigotes. You treat Leishmania with amphotericin B and sodium stiboglucanate. Amphotericin B and sodium stiboglucanate for Leishmania. That's it for this section of protozoa, but in the next section we'll go over hematologic infections caused by protozoa such as your plasmodium and its life cycle as well as babesia causing babesiosis. And we'll also go a little bit more in-depth of hemoflagellates in general. It's all about the blood and the species that we can put into our category of hemoflagellates and as well as the different types of leishmania such as your Donovani and Brasiliensis. Now let's go over protozoa of hematologic infections. They are made of plasmodium and babesia. In plasmodium, you can either have plasmodium vivax, plasmodium falciparum, or plasmodium malariae. And what does plasmodium cause? It causes malaria. Your symptoms are fever, headache, anemia, and splenomegaly. With plasmodium vivax or plasmodium ovale, you have a 48-hour cycle. It's otherwise known as a tertian cycle, which includes a fever on the first day and the third day. Thus, fevers are actually 48 hours apart. They have a dominant form in the liver, which is the hypnozoite. Plasmodium vivax and ovale, hypnozoite. And remember when I said the most severe and worst one of them all is? Falciparum is the worst. Plasmodium falciparum is severe and it has an irregular fever pattern. The parasitized red blood cells actually occlude the capillaries. And what capillaries is the most important? The capillaries in the brain causing cerebral malaria. It can also occlude or block the capillaries in your kidneys and your lungs. Now, Plasmodium malariae isn't as bad, but it has a 72-hour cycle or a quartan cycle of fevers. Plasmodium malaria, 72-hour cycle or quartan fevers. And when I say quartan, I meant fever in an interval of every three to four days. But what's also important for the exam, doctors, is an emphasis on our life cycle of the Plasmodium species. And here is a USMLE question as an example. A 45-year-old woman comes to the the emergency department due to two days of fever, chills, malaise, and fatigue. The patient returned from an African jungle safari three weeks ago. She received mefloquin chemoprophylaxis during the travel, which she stopped taking upon arrival in the United States. The temperature is 38.9 Celsius or 102 degrees Fahrenheit. Blood pressure is 122 over 68, pulse is 110, and respirations 20. Physical examination shows mucosal pallor. Laboratory results reveal mild anemia and thrombocytopenia. Peripheral blood smear shows intraerythrocytic plasmodium falciparum. Which of the following is the most likely underlying cause of the patient's infection? And the choices are A. Inactivity of mefloquine against gametocytes B. Infection with parasites resistant to chloroquine 
C. Mosquito bite after the discontinuation of prophylaxis. D. Impaired clearance of liver schizonts. And E. Release of dormant hypnocytes from hepatocytes. And the answer is D. Impaired clearance of liver schizonts. And doctors, let's discuss why. The travelers to malaria endemic regions should be counseled on mosquito avoidance measures and given prophylaxis, right? So she was taking her prophylaxis, but mefloquin is a schizonticide that actively destroys replicating parasites within the red blood cells. However, it is inactivated in the liver and has no efficacy against hepatic schizonts. And therefore, our patient must receive mefloquin up to four weeks upon return to ensure that parasites released from the liver are also destroyed when they infect red blood cells. The liver schizonts rupture over 8 to 30 days. And individuals who do not take mefloquin upon return, as in this case in our patient, are at risk for hepatic schizont release and subsequent red cell infection leading to a symptomatic malaria. So four weeks after return, mefloquin should still be administered. But that's why it's very important for us to know what the life cycle of plasmodium is. And let's get into that. Let's begin on day one. And it all begins with a sporozoite coming from the salivary glands of a mosquito. It all starts with a sporozoite. And the cause of that bite is a plasmodium-infected female Anopheles mosquito. And within just a few minutes, the sporozoites will migrate through the bloodstream and invade the parenchymal cells of the liver. And it's within the liver that these sporozoites start to engage in asexual reproduction called schizogony. And schizogony creates schizonts. Step 2. Schizogony creates schizonts in the liver. So once the sporozoites form into schizonts, over the next few weeks, they start to develop these things called merozoites. So this is where your Plasmodium falciparum, Plasmodium malaria, and Plasmodium nolesi differ from the life cycle of your Plasmodium vivax and Plasmodium ovale. Plasmodium falciparum malariae and nolesi, they work quickly. They actually multiply asexually and they mature and they develop these merozoites within just one to two weeks. Plasmodium falciparum malaria no lessy develop merozoites in one to two weeks. While Plasmodium vivax and Plasmodium ovale go to sleep. Vivax and ovale go to sleep by going dormant into a form called hypnozoites. Plasmodium O and V or O valley and vivax go to sleep or dormant for over months to years. And where do they sleep? They sleep in the liver and so there's a long delay before symptoms start with those two infections. Vivax and ovale as hypnozoites. So once they wake up from this exoerythrocytic phase, they start to wake up and they become merozoites. And it's the merozoites that bind to the surface receptors and invade red blood cells. Step 3. Merozoites invade red blood cells. And it's in this stage that certain conditions have an evolutionary advantage. 
Plasmodium vivax, for example, uses a certain antigen to invade the red blood cell, and that's the Duffy antigen. Some people don't have the Duffy antigen, including people who are afflicted with sickle cell anemia. So people who are afflicted with sickle cell anemia with no Duffy antigens, that means that they have some protection against malaria, particularly Plasmodium vivax. And other conditions such as thalassemia or G6PD make parasite-infected erythrocytes very susceptible to dying from oxidative stress. So that also offers some protection against the spread of plasmodium within their bodies. And once plasmodium gets into the RBCs, we start the erythrocytic phase. It all begins with a merozoite undergoing a sexual reproduction with transformational changes that last for two to three days. The first stage of the merozoite changing into what's called a trophozoite or the ring form. Erythrocytic phase number one, early trophozoite ring form. In the second stage of the erythrocytic phase, the trophozoite then grows to become a late trophozoite. Erythrocytic phase number two, late trophozoite. The trophozoite then gives rise to the erythrocytic schizont. Number three, schizont. That's the stage of malaria, or that's a stage of plasmodium development where it looks like there are seeds inside, and those seeds are actually merozoites inside the RBC schizont. And how many merozoites in that one schizont depends on the type of plasmodium it is. Like, for example, it can be as little as 6 to 12 in the plasmodium ovale, up to 36 with the plasmodium falciparum. The asexual cycle determines the time between your febrile episodes and these schizons will have a brown pigment in it and that's essentially the poop as the merozoites and the parasites are eating up your hemoglobin and they call that hemozoin the poop or the byproduct is called hemozoin and once you get enough merozoites in those schizons it pops and out merozoites go and these merozoites will go into the blood and some of them will infect other red blood cells while others go into a sexual phase. They undergo gametogony, where they divide and give rise to gametocytes. Merozoites give rise to gametocytes. These gametocytes will hide in the red blood cells until the female Anopheles mosquito sucks it up. And the gametocytes don't do anything until it reaches the mosquito's gut, where they mature and fuse into what's called a zygote. Gametocytes become zygotes. This fusing and forming into a zygote, they undergo what's called a sexual reproduction in the gut of the mosquito. That's where they have sex, and their form of sex is called sporogony. Sporogony happens in the mosquito's gut. Oh, 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 yeah. OO is right because once the gametocytes mature and fuse into a zygote, they then become and mature into oocytes and eventually oocysts. These oocysts then rupture inside the mosquito's gut and rupture into sporozoites and thus we go back to what infected us in the first place or infected our patients in the first place, which are these sporozoites. Gametocyte sex give rise to zygotes, to oocytes, to oocysts, 
then bursts into sporozoites. Oh, oh yeah. Oh, oh yeah is right. <laughs> it's also a good thing to remember that the incubation time differs between a few weeks or a few days or even months and years, right? So Plasmodium falciparum, for example, the incubation time is only a few days while Plasmodium malaria is a few weeks. At the same time, remember when I said that asexual cycle determines the time between febrile episodes? It's because the paroxysms of the fever are related to the release of tissue necrosis factor alpha and other inflammatory cytokines that correspond to the rupture of the red blood cells themselves that are in your body. These waves of reproductive cycles happen and correlate to the types of fever. For example, the tertian fevers of Plasmodium vivax and Plasmodium valley. The severe irregular fever pattern of Plasmodium falciparum as it causes the worst symptoms of them all. The 72-hour quartan cycle of Plasmodium malariae. And you diagnose malaria through a blood smear, finding the trophozoite ring form within the RBC. Trophozoite is a ring. Or the schizons that contain the merozoites, and you'll find red granules, also known as Schuffner stippling, throughout the red blood cell cytoplasm seen with Plasmodium vivax or ovale. You treat Plasmodium with chloroquine for sensitive species, and if it's resistant, you use mefloquine. You can also use atovaquone or proguanil. If the infection is life-threatening, you use intravenous quinidine or artesanate, and you test for G6PD. For Plasmodium vivax or ovale, you add primaquine for hypnozoites, and you also test for G6 deficiency. These drugs can very much affect red blood cells with patients that have G6PD. Plasmodium vivax and Plasmodium ovale need chloroquine followed by primaquine. For clinical diagnosis of our patients, let's go over the fevers. For Plasmodium malariae, it's every 72 hours, otherwise called as the quartan fever. Malariae, 72 hours, quartan. For Plasmodium vivax and ovale, it's every 48 hours, otherwise known as the tertian fever. Plasmodium vivax and ovale, 48 hours, tertian fever. For Plasmodium nolesi, it's every 24 hours. For Plasmodium falciparum, it's variable. It's either every 24 or 48 hours, and that's otherwise known as a malignant tertian fever. Falciparum is the worst. And before we end this section, I suppose we should talk about our other hematologic infection that is a protozoa, and that is Babesia. Babesia causes babesiosis. It causes a fever and hemolytic anemia, and predominantly in the northeastern United States. If you have asplenia, you, have, you are at an increased risk of severe disease with Babesia. And Babesia is transmitted through the Ixodes tick. Babesia Ixodes tick. Which is the same vector as your Borrelia bordeferi and your Anaplasma species. You diagnose babesiosis or babesia through the blood smear. You'll see a ring form, otherwise known as a Maltese cross, and you can also diagnose you can also diagnose through PCR or polymerase chain reaction. You treat babesia with atovaquone and azithromycin together. Babesia, atovaquone plus azithromycin. Yay! Now we're going to move into our important metazoan parasites, and we will start with trematodes. Trematodes are commonly called flukes. They are leaf-shaped worms which are generally flat and fleshy. They are hermaphroditic except for schistosoma which has a separate male and female. Schistosoma, separate male and female. 
Trematodes have complicated life cycles that occur in two or more hosts. They have operculated eggs except for schistosoma, which contaminate water, perpetuating the life cycle and are also used to diagnose infections. The first intermediate hosts of trematodes are snails. Snails, first host of trematodes. We'll start with two of them that have lateral spines, which are schistosoma mansoni and schistosoma japonicum. And how I remember the morphology of mansoni, honestly, I think of Charles Manson. He was a famous serial killer, famous for stabbing people. And that's what schistosoma mansoni looks like. It looks like someone's about to stab you with its spike on the side, aka lateral spine. Both schistosoma japonicum and schistosoma mansoni cause intestinal schistosomiasis. Its reservoir is cats, dogs, and cattle, and you acquire it through contact with water and skin penetration. With skin penetration, humans will have itching, and then it will mature in the veins of the mesentery. The eggs then cause granulomas in the liver, causing a liver enlargement in chronic cases. The treatment for Schistosoma mansoni and Schistosoma japonicum is praziquantel. Mansoni and japonicum equals intestinal schistosomiasis. The next schistosoma is schistosoma hematobium. It causes vesicular schistosomiasis, while the other ones cause intestinal schistosoma hematobium is the only one out of schistosomas that cause vesicular schistosomiasis. Its reservoir hosts are primates, but like the other schistosomas, you can get this with contact in water as well as a skin penetration. Again, the area with skin penetration will have itching, but this one will mature in the bladder veins. Its chronic infection is highly associated with bladder cancer in Egypt and Africa. And with hematobium, the spine is in its terminal, it's in the ends. Schistosoma hematobium, squamous cell carcinoma of the bladder. So the squamous cell carcinoma of the bladder caused by schistosoma hematobium will cause painless hematuria. Schistosoma hematobium will also cause pulmonary hypertension. The treatment is the same and the treatment is the same across all schistosomas and that you use praziquantel. Praziquantel for schistosomas. Our next trematode, aka fluke disease, is Clonorchis sinensis, otherwise known as the Chinese liver fluke. Its reservoir is dogs, cats, and humans. And you will get this through eating raw fish. Clonorchis sinensis, dogs, cats, humans, eating a raw fish. You will get a serum-like sickness with this, and you will find operculated eggs through microscopy. And when I say operculated eggs, that means that there is some sort of lid. It's a it's a cap-like cover of the shell. You also treat Clonorchis sinensis with praziquantel. Clonorchis sinensis eating raw fish. Alright, our next trematode is Fasciola hepatica. And Fasciola hepatica is otherwise known as sheep liver fluke. And when you say sheep liver fluke, obviously it's sheep as well as cattle and human beings as reservoir hosts. And you get sick through ingestion of aquatic plants and watercress. Fasciola hepatica, ingestion of aquatic plants and watercress. The symptoms are subclinical, which are fever, night sweats, and malaise. 
and just like most trematodes, you'll see a percolated eggs. The only time that you don't see a percolated eggs are schistosomas. And again, like most trematodes, you treat it with praziquantel. Fasciola hepatica, aquatic plants, and watercress. Our next trematode or fluke, Fasciolopsis busci, otherwise known as the giant intestinal fluke. Its reservoir is pigs, dogs, rabbits, and humans, and we get sick through ingestion of aquatic plants and water chestnuts. Fasciolopsis busci, water chestnuts. And that differs from fasciola hepatica, which are watercress. The symptoms with fasciolopsis buski are subclinical and that they and that they cause diarrhea and abdominal pain. You'll see a percolated eggs and you treat with praziquantel. The next organism is Paragominus westermani. Paragominus westermani is otherwise known as the lung fluke. Its reservoirs are humans, cats, and the cat family, as well as canines and pigs. You can acquire this from raw crabs and crayfish. It mimics pulmonary tuberculosis, and you will see operculated eggs in your microscopy, and you can treat this with praziquantel. Paragominus westermani. Lung fluke coming from crabs and crayfish. Now, if you see a pattern that praziquantel is a treatment for trematodes, you're absolutely right. Moving on to cestodes. Cestodes are otherwise known as tapeworms. Cestodes are tapeworms. They consist of three basic portions, the head or the scolex, a neck section which produces the proglottids, and the third section which are the segments or the proglottids themselves, which mature as they move away from the scolex. The combination of the neck and the proglottids are called the strobilla. Neck and proglottids, strobilla. Cestodes are hermaphroditic. With each proglottid, they develop both a male and female reproductive organs. Ew, gross. Yeah, it's gross, but it's effective. Tinea saginata, for example, will have 1,000 to 2,000 proglottids containing 100,000 eggs each. While Tinea solium have 1,000 proglottids with 60,000 eggs each. It's gross, but it's effective. So they mature eggs and develop in the most distal of the proglottids. With cestodes, tapeworms. they adhere to the mucosa via the scolex, which is a knobby-looking thing and has either suckers or sucking grooves. But remember, they have no GI tract, so they absorb the nutrients from the host's GI tract. They're diagnosed by finding the eggs or the proglottids in the feces and for the most part they have complex life cycles that involve extra intestinal larval forms in intermediate hosts. When humans are the intermediate hosts, these infections are generally more serious than the intestinal infections with adult tapeworms. Humans as intermediate hosts means more serious complications. We're moving on to GI cestodes or tapeworms. First one up is Tinea saginata, otherwise known as beef tapeworm. Tinea saginata, beef tapeworm. Alright, so the intermediate host of Tinea saginata is cattle, while the definitive hosts are human beings. This is transmitted through eating rare beef that contain cysticerci. 
Sissy circa is a plural form for sissy circus, which is a scientific name given to, like, young tapeworms. True, and if rare beef contains that and we ingest that, we will get tinea saginata. But the good news for that is, the humans are the definitive hosts, which means it's not as bad if we were the intermediate hosts like in other tinias that we'll see later. The disease or the organs involved are the intestines, specifically the small intestines, hence the name intestinal tapeworm. Its signs and symptoms are asymptomatic, but you can get vague abdominal pains with this, and it's diagnosed through the proglottids or the eggs in our feces. The treatment? Praziquantil. Praziquantil. The next cestode is Tinea solium or pork tapeworm. Its intermediate host is a swine and sometimes human beings. Its definitive hosts are also human beings and it's seen in developing countries as well as Slavic countries. The form or transmission of Tinea solium is water vegetation, contaminated food, and auto-infection with the eggs. Our patients or we will get this through ingestion of rare or raw pork containing the cystis cerci. Again, humans can either be intermediate hosts in which cystocerci or larvae develop in, as well as definitive hosts in which humans will host the adult tapeworms. It's either or, which means it's very bad when cystocercosis begins in our patients. Once we have cystocercosis or eggs, there will be larval development in the brain, heart, lung, eyes, etc. And it will cause adult onset epilepsy. You can also have intestinal tapeworm. The intestinal part will just have signs and symptoms the same as your Tinea saginata. With cystocercosis or eggs, we'll have to do a biopsy of the tissue. But if it's just an intestinal tapeworm, we'll see the proglottids or the eggs in the feces. We can treat tinea solium. If it's a cystocercosis, we can give them praziquantil, but we have to do surgery in some of these sites as it lives in the tissues. Praziquantil is very effective against the intestinal form of this disease. For neurocystocercosis, we provide albendazole. Treatment must be carefully monitored for inflammation for their reactions to the dying worms, especially if they move into the brain. In some cases, we have to surgically remove them, and in others, we provide albendazole with steroids. The steroids will lower the inflammation, and recent studies also show that a combination of albendazole and praziquantil are highly effective against a neurocystocercosis that is relative to monotherapy. And before we end with tinnosolium, here's one last thing to remember. You must be careful on how you cook your pig because of tinnosolium. Our next test toad is Diphilobothrium latum. Diphilobothrium latum, otherwise known as your fish tapeworm. Its intermediate hosts are crustaceans, fish, and rarely humans, but its definitive hosts are humans and mammals, as well as seen in cool lake regions. By ingesting or drinking pond water with copepods, which are crustaceans, and they carry the larva forms or frog or snake poultices. You can also get Diphilobothrium latum or fish tapeworm from eating rare or raw and pickled fish. Those contain sparganums. OMG, Mark, like what are sparganums? Well, to answer that question, let's talk about how the adult tapeworms have eggs pass into the feces of the mammal host. And after ingestion by a suitable freshwater crustacean such as a copepod, which is the first intermediate host, they develop into coracidia. Coracidia. Then coracidia develop into the pleurocercoid larva, otherwise known as a sparganum, in the fish after it ingests the crustacean. It's the pleurocercoid larvae or the sparganum, aka sparganum, that infects are human hosts when they consume raw or undercooked fish. 
player Sercoid Larvae, aka Sparganum, coming from raw or undercooked fish. Sparganum, or the larvae, can penetrate the intestinal wall and insist, causing what's called sparganosis. And when you have a fish tapeworm or Diphilobothrium melatum in your intestines, especially in your small intestines, it can grow up to 10 meters and it can cause megaloblastic anemia. Secondary to B12 deficiency. The tapeworm will compete for the B12 in your intestines. You will diagnose this for seeing the proglottids or the eggs in the feces. And you treat Diphilobothrium latum like your other cestodes with Praziquantel. Our next cestode is Echinococcus granulosis. Echinococcus granulosis. Its intermediate host is herbivores and rarely humans, but the definitive hosts of Echinococcus granulosis are carnivores in sheep raising areas. This is transmitted through the ingestion of Echinococcus eggs, and humans are the intermediate hosts. The disease is hydatid cyst disease or liver and lung, where cysts containing a brood cap capsules develop. And when I say hydated cysts, those are cysts with eggshell calcifications in the liver. Echinococcus granulosis, hydated cysts in the liver. The cysts can rupture and can cause anaphylaxis. Our patients may have been infected with ingestion of eggs in food that's contaminated with dog feces, especially if that dog has been around sheep. Sheep are definitely intermediate hosts for this. Having hydated eggs in the liver, we diagnose through imaging, as well as Serology. Unlike your other cestodes, Echinococcus granulosis is treated with albendazole. Echinococcus granulosis, albendazole. While we usually treat tinea saginata, tinea solium, diphilobothrium latum with praziquantel, we treat Echinococcus granulosis with albendazole and surgery. There's another echinococcus we should be worried about, Echinococcus multilocularis, but it's not that high yield in the exam, so I'll just go over it rather quickly. Its intermediate hosts are rodents, its definitive hosts are canines and cats in northern areas. It's transmitted through the ingestion of eggs. Humans are the intermediate hosts and it can cause alveolar hydatid cyst disease. Surgical resection is our only mode of treatment. Echinococcus multilocularis causes alveolar echinococcosis. Alveolar hydatid disease, aka alveolar echinococcosis, is highly lethal in humans. It, it primarily affects the liver by inducing a hepatic disorder similar to liver cancer and is a serious public threat in places like China, Siberia, and Central Europe. And this concludes our GI cestodes aka tapeworms section. Yay! Our next section is all about nematodes. And nematodes are roundworms. Nematodes are roundworms. Nematodes cause a variety of diseases such as your pinworms, whipworms, hookworms, trichinosis, threadworms, filariasis, etc. They have round, unsegmented bodies, hence the name roundworms, and they are transmitted in one of four ways. Number one. Ingestion of eggs such as your enterobius, ascaris, and trichoris. Number two. Direct invasion of skin by larval forms such as your nicator, ancylostoma, or strongyloides. No. 
number three. They can be caused by the ingestion of meat containing larvae. For example, trichinella. Larvae with trichinella. Number four. The infection can involve insects transmitting their larvae with bites. And the larvae with bites include Wuchereria, Loa Loa, Mancinella, Oncocerca, and Drunkunculus. That was like totally exciting. Yes, it was, but we're going to divide our roundworms, aka nematodes, into three different sections. Section 1 Nematodes or roundworms transmitted by eggs, which would include Enterobius vermicularis, Trichurus trichura. Ascaris lumbricoides and Toxocara canis or cati. And let's begin with Enterobius vermicularis, aka pinworm. Enterobius vermicularis or pinworm is the most frequent helminth parasite in the United States. Enterobius affects the large intestines as well as causing perianal itching. Enterobius is transmitted by eggs and person to person auto infection. Its diagnosis is by sticky swab of the perianal area and its over has a flattened side with a larvae inside of it. You can treat Enterobius vermicularis or pinworm with bendazoles. Remember bendazoles for bendy worms. Remember bendazoles for bendy worms. You can treat with bendazoles or parental pamoate. The next nematode or roundworm transmitted by eggs is Trichurus trichura, otherwise known as the whipworm. How I remember is TT is WW. Trichurus trichura is whipworm. Trichurus trichura affects your cecum and it causes appendicitis and rectal prolapse. As I said earlier, it's transmitted through ingested eggs and it's diagnosed because you can see barrel shaped eggs with bipolar plugs in the stools. TT or WW has bipolar plugs on both ends. And here's my mnemonic. TT or WW has BB. Or you can say TT or WW has Bebe. TT or WW has BB plugs on both ends. It's Bebe or BB for barrel shaped bipolar plugs on both ends. You'll see the ova in the stools, and even though it's often asymptomatic, but you can also get loose stools and anemia. And remember that the rectal prolapse that I mentioned earlier is usually seen in children. The transmission is fecal oral, and you administer what you normally administer for these bendy round worms, which is bendazoles. Specifically for this one, it's albendazole. Albendazole for Trichurus trichura. TT or WW has bebe. Our next nematode or roundworm transmitted by eggs is Ascaris lumbricoides. Ascaris is the most common helminth worldwide and it's the largest of all the roundworms. The disease it causes is Ascariasis and it comes because we ingest the egg and the egg becomes a larva which migrates through to our lungs which of course causes coughing and it matures in your small intestines. It may obstruct your intestines or bile duct. I have personally seen these on a patient and they coughed out one of the worms. They may cause obstruction at the ileocecal valve and all these worms can cause intestinal perforation on top of the biliary obstruction and the migration to the nose and mouth. You diagnose this through bile stained knobby eggs. You can also see these adult worms that are coughed out or they come out of the patient somehow and they go between a 6 to 12 inches. You can treat this with supportive therapy during pneumonitis and surgery for ectopic migrations. And as usual, for our roundworms, we need to administer bendazoles. 
Our next trematode transmitted by eggs is Toxocaracanus. The British would pronounce this as Toxocaracanus, as well as Toxocaracati. And if you don't hear it from the name, it means dog or cat Ascaris. It's otherwise known as your visceral larva migrants. The larvae wander aimlessly until they die and that causes inflammation. Toxocaracanus or canis and Toxocaracati are actually dangerous because as they migrate through the blood through the intestinal wall, you will see inflammation affecting the liver, your eyes, you can go blind with this, CNS, which will cause seizures and coma, as well as the heart, which will cause myocarditis. It's transmitted through ingesting the eggs from handling puppies or eating dirt in the yard. You can diagnose this through clinical findings and serology, and of course, in self-limiting cases, you give albendazole or mibendazole. Bendazole's for bendy worms. Section 2 will be roundworms, aka nematodes, transmitted by larvae, which include Nicator americanus, Antelisterma brasiliense, Antelisterma caninum, Strongyloides stercoralis, and Trichinella spiralis. The first one is Nicator americanus, otherwise known as New World Hookworm. The disease it causes is hookworm infection, and that hookworm will have lung migration that will cause pneumonitis, and not to mention that it's blood sucking, which will also cause our patients anemia. This Nicator americanus, or New World Hookworm, transmits through its filariform larva. Filariform larva. And that filariform larva penetrates intact skin of bare feet. You can diagnose this through fecal larvae up to 13 millimeters and ova. The ova is transparent, it's oval, with two to eight cell stage visible inside. You may be FOB or occult blood positive through your fecal sample. The treatment is mebendazole and of course iron therapy for the anemia. Our next round run transmitted by larvae is Ancelostoma brasiliense or Ancelostoma caninum. These are dog and cat hookworms and they cause the disease cutaneous larva migrants and they cause intense skin itching. The filariform larva penetrates intact skin but cannot mature in humans. The disease is usually presumptive diagnosis or history of exposure. You treat this with thiabendazole as well as topical corticosteroids. Our next round burrow nematode transmitted by larvae is Strongyloides stercoralis. It's otherwise known as your threadworm. It can cause a disease called strongylodiasis, and if early, it can cause pneumonitis, abdominal pain, and diarrhea. In later disease, it will cause malabsorption, ulcers, and bloody stools. Strongyloides stercoralis, or threadworms, they cause GI symptoms and will cause duodenitis. In the lungs, they'll cause pulmonary symptoms such as a dry cough and hemoptysis, and with the skin, it'll cause pruritus or itching. And then you can also have a hyperinfection syndrome caused by autoinfection as the larvae enter the bloodstream. And like Nicator americanus and Ancelostoma brasiliense and Ancelostoma caninum, this filariform larva penetrates the intact skin. It can also cause autoinfection, which leads to indefinite infections unless if you treat it. The rubidiform larva will be seen in the feces under a microscope. You can also diagnose strong through a serology. And then how do we treat it? We treat it with either ivermectin and the usual for roundworms which are bendazoles. 
Now we move on from the nematodes or roundworms that are transmitted by larvae by penetrating you, and we go to the larvae that we eat, which is Trichinella spiralis, causing trichinosis. The larvae will enter the bloodstream and insist in striated muscle, causing myositis. And with myositis, there's a lot of pain. Trichinosis will cause fever, vomiting, nausea, periorbital edema, and myalgia. And how do you get this? You get this by ingesting undercooked meat, especially pork. Trichinella spiralis larvae is ingested. You can also transmit this through fecal oral means, but that is much less likely. You diagnose this through muscle biopsy, as well as your clinical findings such as fever, myalgia, splinter hemorrhages, and eosinophilia. Yes, we do treat this with bendazoles, but we also give steroids for severe symptoms, especially with the myalgia. Trichinella spiralis loves muscles. Section 3 will be filarial nematodes, aka roundworms. They are spread by blood-feeding insects such as black flies and mosquitoes, and they include Wuchereria brancrofti, Brugia malayi, Loa loa, aka African roundworm, Oncocerca volvulus, and Drancunculus medinensis, aka guinea worm or fiery serpent. So I guess we're on to filarial nematodes, and we're gonna start with Wuchereria bancrofti and Brugia malayi. These species cause elephantiasis. Wuchereria bancrofti and Brugia malayi cause elephantiasis. This can cause lymphatic filariasis. Worms will invade your lymph nodes, cause inflammation, and then lymphoedema. The onset of symptoms will start after nine months to one year. They're transmitted by a female mosquito, and we diagnose is through microfilaria in the blood as well as eosinophilia. You treat this with surgery as well as ivermectin and diethylcarbamazine. Mucheri bancrofti and Brugia malay are treated with surgery, ivermectin, and diethylcarbamazine. Our next species of filarial nematodes are Loa Loa, otherwise known as your African eyeworm. Loa Loa, African eyeworm. Its disease is pruritus and calabar swellings. And Loa Loa will cause swelling in skin as well as a worm in the conjunctiva. It's transmitted by the species Chrysops and mango flies, as well as deer flies and horse flies. Loa Loa transmitted by flies. And you diagnose this through microfilarae in the blood as well as seeing increased eosinophils in your blood or eosinophilia. And like the other worms in section 3 of valerial nematodes, you treat this with diethylcarbamazine as well as a surgical removal of the worms themselves. This next filarial nematode is another scary one, and it's called Oncocerca volvulus. Oncocerca volvulus causes river blindness and itchy leopard rash, and these skin changes are due to the loss of elastic fibers. You will have black skin nodules and black sight. When you think of Oncocerca volvulus, think of black skin, leopard skin, or a leopard kind of rash. Oncocerca volvulus makes you look like a leopard. With the black skin nodules and the black Sight and an allergic reaction is definitely possible. And you know what it's transmitted by? The female black fly. Oncocerca vulvulus, black, 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 black skin nodules, black sight, female black fly. You treat Oncocerca volvulus with ivermectin. The I-V-E-R, ivermectin is the I-V-E-R in river blindness. So think ivermectin and river. Ivermectin for river blindness. 
Now on to our last of the filarial nematodes, which is Drunkunculus medinensis, otherwise known as your guinea worm or fiery serpent. Its disease is caused by creeping eruptions or ulcerations and rash. And you get this from drinking water with the infected copepods. Your diagnosis is through increased IgE and the worm eruption from your skin. The treatment is just slow, cautious worm removal with a stick as well as albendazole. And that's all she wrote for this section on nematodes. Yay! Thank you for hanging out with us and learning parasitology for the USMLE Step 1. As always, please email us at usmlelisten at gmail.com for your questions, anything you need cleared, or suggestions on how we can improve and initiate your auditory learning. Sources for USMLE Listen include First Aid Osmosis Euroleague and Kaplan Study Guides. This is Mark Labella. You can follow me or message me on Instagram at markjlabella. That's M-A-R-K-J-L-A-B-E-L-L-A. -L 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 -L